Amen. Let's pray together as we continue to worship. God, we do thank you so much for being our living hope. Lord, we've read about it in your word. We've sung about the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. We rejoiced with Jordan as she instructed the kids and what faith is and how we can trust and rest in Jesus Christ, knowing that for all eternity we are sealed because of his blood. God, thank you. Thank you for giving us hope and life, for granting us purpose and meaning. Thank you for cleansing us from the iniquity of our sin, from the stain of our sin, the consequences of our sin. And I just pray over these next few moments as we open your word together and as we consider this next book in, in, in Scripture, God, we pray that you would give us understanding and help us. Lord, help me, I pray. May only the words, the message, the truths that you have ordained be heard and remembered. God, teach us, we pray, by your word and by your spirit. Speak, we pray, for your people are listening. It's in your holy name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, if you guys can believe it, about a year and a half ago, we started looking at um, God's story in Scripture. And we began looking at the the overall overarching story that God is doing. And and I was uh, talking with my daughter, Melody, and I was telling her where we are. She's like, oh, you're almost done with the whole Bible. And yeah, probably by the time... By the middle of July, we will be finished with the entire Bible and we'll have done it. Woohoo! Um, but I wanted just to go back for a quick second just to recap the story because I think it's important for us to have that fresh in our minds. Because if you remember, when we, 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 when we think back over, over God's story in Scripture, what we have to recognize is that He created everything. It all started with Him. And He, he, he established things in a good way in, in, in order that we might have a perfect fellowship with Him. He created all of the plants and animals, all the planets, the stars. He, he created people and gave them dominion over all of His creation, created them in His image to be His sovereigns, if you will. In the world. And yet we know it didn't take very long, only only three chapters into Scripture, and we find that humans have decided, no, I want to replace the good things of this world. I want to take this instead of taking God. And so we corrupted God's creation with sin. And sin, you know, we... It, it marred, it fractured that relationship with Jesus Christ, with us, between us and God. And then because of how rampant our sin became, God ordained a catastrophic flood to set things straight and begin anew with a new family. 
And yet, because sin was still reigning in us, we decided we wanted the things of this world rather than the things of God. We decided we didn't trust God enough. And so humans began to create a big tower to the heavens to say, hey, look, how great are we? And so God said, no, you can't do that. So he confused their languages, sent them all over the world because he had told them, be fruitful and multiply. And they were all congregating in one place. And so what we find is that most of the Old Testament is in this season, this era, if you will, of confusion. We talked about how God entered into covenants with humanity in order to work toward restoration. And yet, as we saw through the history of the people of Israel, we humans continue to want to replace the goodness of God with the temporary things of this world. And so eventually God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect embodiment of fellowship between God and humans and made a way for all of us who are fallen in sin to be in a relationship with God by taking our sin in his perfect body on the cross. And that's something we're going to celebrate in just a few moments. And then after living, walking on earth for about 30 years or so, Jesus Christ had gathered a a group of disciples around him. And after he rose from the grave, he commissioned them and said, I want you to go and continue to proclaim the good news of what I've done. I want you to go into all the world and preach the good news. And so we have this era of the church. The church of Jesus Christ was established And as his church, we get to proclaim God's love for the world and get to daily submit to God's ways as the kingdom of God expands throughout the world. And eventually one day Jesus Christ will return to reign and will bring a consummation of the kingdom of God. What we know, what we believe happens in heaven will begin to fully happen here on earth and we'll see that all coming together. And so if you remember, we borrowed some things from the folks at Answers in Genesis. And we put a little few motions to it. So if you guys want to, you guys want to remember? You guys remember how the motions go? Jackie does. She's ready. No, she doesn't. Okay. So what we said is we have creation, right? God created it all. Then we have corruption. He, he, he had to start over. Or the, rather, the corruption of sin in our lives. Catastrophe. Right. He, the, the global flood confusion. Right. And then we have Christ because we all love baby Jesus cross. And one day he's coming again. Consummation. Good job. Good job. So where are we in this big story? Well, we are between the cross and consummation in this era that we might call the church. And as you know, over the last couple of months, as we've been looking in the New Testament, we we've been we studied the Gospels. We studied Acts, which looked at a bit of church history. And we've been in these letters to various churches. Most of them, all the ones we've looked at so far, have been written by Paul. And these letters to these churches were designed to help these churches be established, help root out problems that they were encountering. But today we're going to we're going to make a, a brief shift into a different grouping of letters. And these are letters not to whole churches, but letters to individuals. As we begin to look at the book of 1 Timothy and and really begin to look at what some people call the pastoral letters or pastoral epistles. 
Okay, and so uh, if you have your Bibles and want to open to First Timothy, we're going to be in this book the entire time. But let me just give us a little bit of background, give us a little bit of understanding of how, who this guy Paul is and who Timothy is and, and how they got together. Well, if you remember, uh, Paul is, is an apostle. He was one of the latest, he was the latest apostle. Um, he, he grew up as a Pharisee and began to persecute the church. And then he had this miraculous conversion. And he began to proclaim the gospel all over the world, all over the, the region. Well, Paul and Timothy, they met in this town called Lystra on Paul's second missionary journey, about 49 to 50 A.D., roughly 20 years after Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and rose again, and then ascended. Timothy, it seems, continued with Paul and and Silas for a time as they went on to Berea and then to Athens. I'm sorry, Paul and Silas to Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And then Timothy and Silas remained in Berea for a while while Paul went on to Athens. And we see that in Acts chapter 17. And then sometime later, Silas and Timothy joined up with Paul in Acts 18 in the city of Corinth. And then it seems that Timothy and and Silas remained at Corinth while Paul went on to Ephesus briefly and then back to Antioch. And then on, on Paul's third missionary journey, he returned to Ephesus and spent about three years there. And we believe Timothy was with him for a good bit of that time. But then Timothy was sent on to other places, to Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea again. And overall, Timothy was one of Paul's closest and most trusted ministry partners. He is mentioned in nearly every one of Paul's letters. In fact, the only two letters that that Paul doesn't mention Timothy are the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Galatians. And Timothy himself was kind of of a, of a unique young man. You see, his mom was Jewish and his father was Greek. And yet he also had a great reputation in his community, which is something that that uh, sparked Paul's interest in him. So a lot of people, we don't know exactly when Paul wrote this letter, but we believe it was written about 10 years after Paul and Timothy first met, about 10 years after the church in Ephesus what it was established, most likely people believe that, that it was on a fourth missionary journey that we don't have any record of. We have little hints of things. But in spite of the fact that the church at Ephesus had the benefit of over three years of Paul's ministry, it seems that challenges were setting in. And there were doctrinal issues that seemed to threaten the health of the church. And so Paul wrote this letter as a means of instructing Timothy, who was there in Ephesus, in order to help the church be established. And so today, as we walk through the book, uh, we're going to be going, we're going to be launching from the outline that the guys at the Bible Project have used. In fact, some of the kids, you guys have these big pieces of paper you can color. You're going to follow along generally with exactly what we're going to look at. I've changed some words to protect the innocent or guilty, however that phrase should go. But as we look at this, let's begin by thinking about this. Paul starts in chapter one by reminding Timothy of his assignment. He's reminding Timothy of his assignment. Over the many years that I've had the privilege of knowing Danielle's dad, one of the themes that has come up time and time again is this idea of an assignment, of an assignment from the Lord. He talks frequently about the the assignments that God has given him. 
It may be a coworker. It may be a Sunday school class. It may be his children or his grandchildren. He knows full well that God has said, I have a job for you here. You may not finish until you may not quit until you're done there with that assignment. And so he's, he's keenly aware. In fact, sometimes these assignments are as simple as the neighbors that, are, that he's serving with his truck that becomes the community truck half the time. But he, Fletcher, Danielle's dad, is keenly aware of the ministry assignments that God has given him and refuses to consider that assignment completed until he has peace from God about it. And so here in the book of 1 Timothy... We get to see Paul reminding Timothy of the assignment that God has placed before him. And in many ways, this whole letter is is a reminder and a clarity on that. But here in the opening chapter, Paul makes it clear that Timothy's assignment is to refute false doctrine in the church of Ephesus. But to do it with pure hearted love, a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Look at what it says in 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 5. It says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, or, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You see, it seems that there were people who were teaching certain things about God, about marriage practices, about adherence to some form of the Torah or of the Old Testament law, about genealogies. And so Paul urges Timothy to face these controversies head on, to sort of nip nip them in the bud. And we have to recognize that there will always be teachings. There will always be things that threaten our health as a church. There will always be things that will threaten our health as believers in Jesus Christ. And so we must be keenly aware of of what we believe and why. Which is kind of why we're doing the New City Catechism things, the Kids Connection things. So that we can help the, the youngest among us to, to have that firm foundation. So that when they hear something strange their antenna will go up and be able to say, wait, that doesn't sound quite right. In the verses that we read, Paul seems to lay out the manner in which we should go about refuting false doctrine and rooting out heresies. It's not to belittle or ostracize people, though there may at times be a place for hard language and church discipline when we see false doctrine very clearly and blatantly taught. But Paul's motivation is redemptive. Paul's motivation is love. Look at what it says in, in 1 Timothy 1.5. It says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul's not trying to make people see things only his way. And it seems that his sincere and genuine desire is that the church be established on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, on the gospel. Not on strange myths, not on strange, I think in this case they're talking about genealogies because they're assuming, well, if you're following this person, they must have come from that line. And, and, well, that person can't be trusted because they don't come from the right blood. And that's not true. In fact, one, one thing that we see is that Paul's heart in this regard is that 
Well, he acknowledges that he is not worthy to be called to the role to which God has called him. And so in humility, Paul says this. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Of whom I am the foremost. Imagine what would happen in our spiritual and theological debates if, if we came with this attitude. Imagine what would happen if, if on our, while we're completing the assignments that God has for us, we're entering in knowing that God has called us to this assignment from a position of weakness. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You see, we've seen elsewhere in Scripture where it says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So I pray that as we grow in our knowledge of God's word and in the finer nuances of our faith, that we will, we will also grow in love so that we might also build up one another and God's church. And I want to just encourage you, friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I hope you can see that we, as we do life together, we don't claim to have all the answers. Like Jordan was talking to the kids, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we know who holds the future. And in him and in him alone, we have faith and we rest, we trust in what he's doing. We don't try to come to every debate or issue with pride. We recognize that were it not for what Jesus did on the cross taking our sin on his sinless body, paying our debt that we would have no standing with God. In humility, I plead with you, we plead with you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, respond to the call of the Lord. But Paul concludes this chapter. And one of the interesting things Paul does in the book is is at three different times he has sort of a benedictory response, a, a doxology. He, he has this sort of um, prayer. And so here in 1 Timothy 1.17, Paul concludes this section by saying, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All that we do is to be done for the glory and honor of God. Our completed tasks are not so that we can gain some credit and renown, but so that God will be praised. And so Paul reminds Timothy of his assignment, and then he moves on to some things that are very specific for the church in Ephesus, and that is ecclesiastical instructions for Ephesus. Ecclesia what? Ecclesiastical instructions for Ephesus. Now, I know that's a big word, and we don't often use words that big to fill in the blanks, but good luck. The whole point is that ecclesiastical instructions are things related to the church, things that will help the church run better. And so Paul gets into it very clear, very, really um, immediately by telling Timothy, hey, first of all, I want prayer. There needs to be a priority of prayer in the life of the church. And so in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through, 1 through 6, he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, 
for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires that all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, Paul's desire is that prayer be a hallmark in the church. You see, prayer is our deep and abiding communication with the Lord. Prayer is our opportunity to converse with God on a personal, on a corporate, as it pertains to us as a church, on a national level, and on, a, on, on matters that, that impact the entire planet. Prayer helps to recognize our ongoing need for God's work in this world and in our lives. And so Paul's instruction here helps us see that we should pray for one another, that we should pray for those who are in authority, and that we should pray for those who are far from God. And you guys know this, but we, we try to follow the Bible's encouragement in this here in the life of, of PBC as we pray individually and as we pray corporately for each other's needs and concerns. You guys know in the bulletin, you get this little prayer list. And I know sometimes you, you scan it and you think, oh, well, that's not, nothing's changed. Well, let me encourage you, if nothing's changed, maybe we need to be praying more diligently about it. But I, I've been rejoicing over the last few weeks as we've had opportunities to pray on behalf of, of various people in, in, in the church, pray for our missionaries and seeing God work in, in wonderful and profound ways. So I want to just encourage you. As you have opportunity, use this little prayer sheet in your personal devotion time. Pray with God. Intercede on behalf of one another. But if you'll notice on that prayer list, we, we try to include things like, for instance, this, this week, um, the nation that we're praying for is, is the nation of Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast. Operation World has a new nation almost every day of the year. And so we get to pray this week for them. We can pray for uh, the Jinnik and Hinnicks in Russia, the un, this unreached people group. We can pray and, and ask that God would move among neighboring tribes and villages. We get to pray on behalf of one another's needs. We get to pray for our national, local, and state leaders. So I want to just encourage you individually, use that in your prayer time. And, and if you have prayer requests... In your bulletin, there's a little funny-looking QR code. You can scan that with your phone. If, if you guys, Some of you guys like to use smartphone things. But you can scan that with your phone, and it'll bring up a little form. You can fill out a prayer request, and it comes right to me, and we'll make sure that we get it prayed for on Wednesday nights. But I also want to encourage us. You see, corporately, we try to make prayer a priority as we set aside, set aside time in the service to pray but also set aside time Wednesday nights at 7 in our, in our weekly prayer gathering. And I want to encourage you to join us on Wednesdays as we pray. We're meeting kind of hybrid, so you can zoom in online if you want to do it that way, or you can come and meet me here at the church and we'll pray together. But if you're like me, prayer doesn't always come easy for me. It should. You think, oh, you're a pastor. You've been a believer for 40 some odd years. You should be a master at praying. And I tell you, I'm not. But I keep praying daily, praying daily, 
And, and one of the joys that I've had in, in participating in that corporate time of prayer on Wednesday nights is getting to hear saints like Jim Knight pray and Carl Adama pray and Vernon Souter and Robin Mevison and Danielle and hearing them pray specifically for needs in this body. And I get instructed in how to pray by listening to them. So I want to encourage you to join in. And if you have a hard time praying, uh, I, uh, I, we got a few of these books recently. It's called Do You Pray? A Question for Everybody by J.C. Ryle. And um, if you have challenges praying, let me encourage you to pick this up. There's a, a, a handful of copies in the back. In fact, if anyone wants this copy, you're welcome to have this one right now. Anybody want it? All right, Panina, I'll get it to you after the service, okay? I'll, I'm, I'm afraid to throw it that far. But this is yours. It's all yours. I'll bring it back there. But those of you guys who are reading, if you read this book, I want you to email me the fallacy that you find in the first chapter. Jim, uh, Jim Knight and I were talking about it this week. And he's like, wait, that's not quite right. So I want you to see if you can pick out where this guy might not be exactly right on prayer. But I think not on prayer, but on salvation. Oh, man, I'm giving away answers, Jim. I shouldn't be doing that. Anyway, so let me just encourage you. I, I've been encouraged this week reading that book, just kind of gaining a better perspective on prayer. But in addition to that, so Paul's priority says, I want you to pray. I want people to lift up holy hands and pray. And then he, he gets on to roles of men and women in the church because we're all either a male or female. That's how God created us. And so how do we learn how to work together? And so Paul gives some interesting instructions. And it kind of gives you some insight into what these guys, the, what the men in Ephesus must have been like. In fact, th- this won't be on the screen, but if you look real briefly in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Here's the extent of what Paul says to all of the men in Ephesus. Are you ready? I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. These guys must have been fighting constantly for Paul to say, just be at peace with each other. Stop fighting. But then he goes on and he says a few more things to women. Look at verse 9, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So it seems that some of the false teaching in the church at Ephesus had resulted in a situation where women were in competition with each other. They were competing with each other over how beautiful they were, over their garments, over, over their wealth, wanting to show off, hey, look at my hat, look at my clothing, I'm better than you. But it also seemed like there was a competition that the women were in against the men in the church, competing for authority and a voice. 
And I got to tell you, in our age of hashtag me too and men generally acting poorly in our society toward women, words like what we just read in 1 Timothy do not go over well with some. Some people look at this and they want to see it as Paul, Paul's way of ensuring that men stay in power because they see Paul as a misogynist or a chauvinist. But if we were to go back and look at all of the places, all of the women that Paul references in Scripture, in fact, we're going to see an exhortation uh, for some very specific women next week. Paul frequently praises the women with whom he has been in association with. And he is constantly grateful for the ministry that women have had in the lives of the churches. He sees them as valuable. So he's not, I don't think, Paul is speaking from a, from a viewpoint of being a, a chauvinist, a misogynist. But there are other people who look at this as a way of Paul saying, hey, this was one specific problem, so this only applies to the people in Ephesus. And so since we're not Ephesus, we can do whatever we want. And so some people take that view and, and, and they would say that every role in the church, every position is open to everybody. And, and some people would call that, we, we label that sort of an egalitarian view or egalitarian, every, equal. Everybody can do everything. Elders, pastors, deacons, Sunday school teachers, everything is open for everybody. Some people have viewed it that way. And yet there are still others who see Paul's instructions here as a guideline for all churches, as a way of reflecting God's order and creation within the church. And when you look at the nature of Paul's argument, he doesn't go back to specifically something there in Ephesus. Sure, he addresses an issue, but he goes back to creation. He goes back and he, he, he establishes his argument from the very earliest days of history. Reflecting on the idea that God is a God of order and in his wisdom, he seems to want his order to be reflected in the church. And so some people view this idea, they, they label this idea as complementarian or the idea that men and women are created equal in value before God, but are given different roles at home and in the church. And in other words, because of different roles, men and women complement each other in the way those roles work together. And so with prayer as a priority and, and the, the roles kind of established, Paul moves on to talk about some specific roles. And he talks about elders and describing elders to be godly men of good rapport who are able to teach, who have a good relationship with their family and community. You see... And, and I think one of the things Paul is, is really trying to commend here is a plurality of elders. I, I don't think God intended for churches to be run by one man. God did not intend for churches to be about only the pastor. And so that's why I think God ordained a plurality of elders. He, he, he invites that. And so I, I'm so grateful for God's wisdom in this and in the men that he has chosen to serve here as elders. But... Paul also talks about a second role, a second position, a second job in the church, and that is deacons. Deacons are essentially servants, and these are men and women who have godly character, who have a good rapport in their community home. And really the only difference between deacons and elders, the biggest difference, is that elders have to be able to teach, 
And deacons do not. And again, I'm grateful for the team of deacons that we have here at PBC. These men and women have a heart to glorify God and edify the body of Christ. And they serve in so many ways behind the scenes. And they do it eagerly. People like Dan McNeil, Gabriel Mariti, Tom and Robin, Buddy, Zach, Brian Pepper. These guys work tirelessly serving us together as a church. And then, as Paul did in the first section of his book, he concludes this section with a, an explanation and a, really a beautiful hymn of benediction. In 1 Timothy three, fourteen to 16, he says, I hope to come to you soon, and I'm, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. You know, we could really spend a whole lot of time just reflecting on on that last verse and that. But for now, let's move on to to the next section. And that is where we get to see Paul not only... So he's talked about... He's talked about Timothy's assignment, and then he talked about the ecclesiastical instructions, things for the organization of the church. Now he's getting to some more general instructions for, for Ephesus in, in chapters 4 through the beginning of 6. And as Paul continues to help Timothy, he gets more specific in some of his exhortations here, but also he gives some instructions that are general principles and practices in the church. He essentially tells Timothy, hey, correct false teaching, which we heard before. In fact, that has come up probably about three times, three different times in the book. But he also tells him, uh, he says, Timothy, I want you to train for godliness. And then finally, let honoring one another permeate everything. So let's consider these very briefly. Paul begins by encouraging him to correct false doctrine. First Timothy 4, 1 through 5 says, now the spirit expressly says in latter times, Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, to teaching of demons, through the insecurity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. And so it seems that there were some here in the church that were beginning to say, well, you can't eat that. You can't do that. You can't act in that way. Saying that God didn't ordain that to be good. And yet Paul's admonition is, no, God created all things to be good and made everything to be available for us to have. So as a young Pastor Timothy is urged to be mindful of these false doctrines, keeping in mind that God created all things to produce life, to produce hope, and produce health. But in order to keep a, in, in order to help him gain a clearer perspective on how to be prepared for this, Paul tells Timothy to essentially train 
for godliness. Trained for godliness. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And essentially, Paul is kind of telling Timothy, hey, don't get distracted by godless things. You see, we, we, when we train for something, we, we look at doing something little by little. We could talk about races or marathons or triathlons or, or anything like that. Or even if it's just growing in physical fitness, we do things little by little in order to gain a physical ability. And that's what Paul is really encouraging Timothy here, not in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. He says, I want you to train, train your body, train your soul, your mind for godliness. And so I want to ask you and really ask me, how are you doing in your own spiritual training? How are you doing in your growth as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you regularly in the word? Are you regularly feeding your soul the word of God? I've been so encouraged with with Zoe. She's she's. Likes to follow habits. She gets into habits. Our, our daughter Zoe uses the YouVersion app. And so she and Danielle and, and our daughter Melody are kind of doing some devotions together. But every night, Zoe is faithful. Before she goes to bed, she is training her soul, training her body, her mind for godliness by pouring herself into the Word of God and hearing what people, how people are reflecting on these things. And she's doing it with other people. There's, there's a few out there. I think she's got like two or three devotionals going on at the same time. How are you doing? Are you regularly in the Word or, or are you just kind of getting a little pick-me-up on Sundays? Are you participating in the discipleship groups that are available throughout the week? Are you jumping in on Sunday mornings, Monday nights with the ladies, Wednesday nights with the men, Wednesday morning with the ladies? Take advantage of those opportunities that are there. And Lord willing, this fall we'll have more. But I want to encourage you. Sometimes disciples, sometimes reading scripture can be tough. We, we read it and we try to keep the big picture, the big story together, which is kind of why we're doing these, these overview uh, messages. But you know, as we keep it all together, sometimes reading the nitty gritty of stuff is difficult. And so I want to encourage you, if you're having difficulty, if you're having challenge. If you're being challenged by reading Scripture, reach out to someone who's a mature believer in Christ. Go talk to them and say, hey, will you walk with me through this? Will you help me understand this? And I got to tell you, if you're a, a mature brother or sister in Christ and someone says that to you, don't be frightened by it. Just open the Word of God with them and read Discuss the word of God with them. You're, you don't have to know everything. and Don't try to say you know something that you don't know, but simply pour out what God has given you. So as a young pastor, Timothy was intimidated by the assignment that was before him. 
And so Timothy was urged to constantly be in training, preparing his soul for life so that, as it says in 1 Timothy 4.12, that he could set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. You see, just as we might see physical training make an impact in our physical appearance by losing weight, gaining muscle, increased capabilities... So our spiritual training is not only, it's not, we will gain knowledge, but that's not all of our spiritual training. It should make a difference somewhere in our lives. People should see the fruit of that training. And so I have to ask you, are you training for godliness? Are you setting an example? And then finally, in, this, in the next section, Paul addresses some matters that were particular to the church in Ephesus, but I think they're also valuable for us. And essentially, he's telling them, let honoring one another permeate everything. And in this big section, Paul goes through and he talks about how to address older men and younger men and older women and younger women and how people should interact. He also urges that people who are widows should be honored. You see, it seems like in the New Testament, they used to keep a list of those who were widows and so that the church could help them, so they could provide for their needs. But Paul says, don't put them on the list if they've got a family or don't put them on the list if they're too young because they'll get remarried and then they'll go on. Only put people on the list and care for them extra if they meet certain criteria. But Paul is encouraging them to honor widows. In in the many times that Danielle and I have had the privilege of going to India, one of the things that we see is that widows in that culture have not traditionally been honored. If, if If a woman's husband dies, they're just about outcast. In fact, there's a, a, a ministry that we got to be a part of that they, they built a whole house for about 30 widows. Because they've been rejected by their parents. And Paul is, is telling them, we need to honor widows. He also is talking about elders and comes back to that and urging that Timothy shouldn't be quick to appoint someone else as an elder. But he also you know, recognizes that elders are not perfect and they're going to make mistakes and they're going to fall into sin. But that accusations and rebukes should be taken seriously. They need to not... Look lightly on any accusation. But then finally, Paul addresses servants. You see, I I have a feeling, you may have run into this too, but I have a feeling in in the church in Ephesus, if if a servant, a bond servant, an, an employee was a Christian and their boss was a Christian, the employee saw that boss now as a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, and so they didn't have to honor them the same way that the culture would. And sometimes they just let their work get a little bit sloppy. As Christians, Paul is essentially saying, hey, if you're a bondservant, you need to honor your master. Look at what it says in 1 Timothy 6, 1-2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So I think one of the things Paul is saying that we can apply is that we as Christians better be the best employees out there. We better do the best 
job so that we can honor God. Whether or not our, our, our bosses are, are Christians, whether or not they're going to show us a little extra grace, we need to be the best because it glorifies God. But then finally, Paul concludes this, the, his book by again coming back to Timothy's re- assignment and reinforcing the assignment that God has for him. The underlying charge is to correct error in the church by teaching and living correct doctrines. Paul wants him to see that it's not just what you know, it's not what, just what you're teaching, but this needs to be lived out. Doctrine should impact how we live. It should make a difference in our lives. And from the time of Paul and Timothy until today, there have been people who have proclaimed a false gospel that is tied to wealth. And Paul seems to be urging that the love of wealth, which was a challenge for the people there in Ephesus, can be a distraction to true godliness. But Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6-7, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. And so rather than getting distracted by the things of this world and adjusting our theology to match our lives, we should obey this admonition in 1 Timothy 6.11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The things of this world can be helpful tools. We need money to do things. We need resources. We need clothing to get around. But essentially, Paul seems to be telling him, hey, don't pursue that. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness. You see, when we pursue righteousness, we'll know how to use our wealth rightly. When we pursue godliness, we'll learn how to live open-handedly, giving as God has given to us. When we pursue faith, we'll be able to trust, and as Jordan said, rest, that God will provide, even in the midst of a financial downturn. When we pursue love, our affections will be turned in the right direction as we unconditionally love one another. When we pursue steadfastness, we'll see a faithfulness, a steadiness in our lives that persists through good times and bad as we get to live in community as a church. And finally, as we pursue gentleness, we'll be able to take every step, every setback in stride and be more ready to show honor to one another. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So many of the letters of the New Testament we see are written to whole churches, written to instruct, to correct, to challenge. And here we get into a different section of Scripture. Here we get to see some more detailed instructions to an individual, in this case to a young man who was assigned the task of helping a church get established. And next week we'll get to look at a more intimate letter as Paul wrote a second letter to Timothy. But the guys at the Bible Project, I love how they, they summarize books. And one of the things they state is that the message of First Timothy is this, that it's a holistic vision of the church. What a church believes shapes how it lives. And in, in many cases, the church should be known for integrity 
and service to the poor out of service to King Jesus because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And I pray that, as, that, that what we believe, our orthodoxy, what we believe, will be displayed by how we live. Some people call it our orthopraxy, the, the practice of our orthodoxy. I pray that what we believe, our orthodoxy, will be displayed in how we live, our orthopraxy, without regret. So, beloved, keep up the great work that you are doing. Keep pursuing godliness. Keep honoring him. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you so much for this letter to Timothy. Thank you for the things that we get to learn in that. Lord, thank you for how you're instructing us. And Lord, I pray that for us here at Poolsville Baptist, that you would help us collectively to walk in obedience to what you've written here, but also help us individually as we seek to be men and women, boys and girls who honor you with our lives, who who don't just allow our faith to be something that we express on Sundays, but allow our faith to dictate how we live every day of the week. God, give us a desire, I pray, to complete the assignments that you place before us. Grant us a, a hunger to train for godliness. But I pray that we would recognize, that we would maintain an attitude of humility as we recognize that we are among the worst of sinners. And yet, in our sin, you came to save us. May we find hope in that. May we find joy in that. May we proclaim that to the world that desperately needs you. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.